It's been a full, a full few weeks, feels like a full few months, and it's great to be with you here. And if you're at home, you know, the reason that we're not doing recorded gatherings on Sunday mornings, uh, there's no criticism to those who are intended, but there is a value, we believe, even if we're not in the same place, in being in the same minute, the same moment, to be together in a sense. And so even if you've gathered with us at home, I hope that this will continue to be something that provides structure for you and your family as you prioritize worshiping Christ, and that together, whether here or at home, we can bring honor to his name and we can continue to function as the church, right? This is an incredibly challenging time for the church. Um, we have assumed a certain amount of uh, freedom and uh, consistency and tradition, frankly, that's helped sustain church communities, Christian communities. And boy, it's, bring, it's being brought down to the core basic elements of uh, relationship and devotion to Jesus. And we will, we will get through this, um, but we're going to have to press in, right? This isn't going to happen automatically. So the, the priority that you're demonstrating and gathering together with others is so critical. And God help us to continue to provide the kind of structure for our families, to continue to invite others who are vulnerable into this kind of place and in, into this experience of worship. All right, I wanted to start with a couple of questions this morning. You may choose to write down answers to this question. If you're comfortable, you can maybe turn to somebody next to you and share answers to these, to these questions. Um, here's the first. Why did you become a Christian? If you're here or you're worshiping with us at home and you are a follower of Christ, would you take a minute to respond to this question? Why did you become a Christian? What motivated your decision? What or whom influenced you to place your trust in Jesus? What caused you to ask Christ for forgiveness, to become a Christian? Could you look back last year when you became a Christian or 10 years ago when you became a Christian or 30 or 40 years ago when you became a Christian and could you turn to somebody near you or write down in your notes, could you articulate to your children at home an answer to this simple question, why? Why did you become a Christian? Take a minute and uh, could you do that? Thanks, Sienna. I'll give you one minute. Take a minute. Talk to one another. See if you can answer this question. Thanks, Sienna. Here's a second question to consider. Why are you a Christian today? Uh, what is one reason? If you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, turn to somebody near to you, turn to those you're, you're with at home or write down in your notes one answer to this question. Why are you a Christian today? I'll give you another minute. 
Take about another 10 seconds. Thanks, Sienna. Here's a third question, and I'll just ask this question and invite you to think about it as I get into this sermon. Here's the third question. I wonder, did you become a Christian because you expected to participate in Jesus' healing or in Jesus' suffering? Were you drawn to the peace and the purpose that Christians so often talk about and sometimes experience? Or were you drawn to the idea that you would suffer or be persecuted, which is something that Christians almost never talk about, but has always been a part of the Christian experience in some part of the world throughout history? Were you looking for things to get better? And by better, I kind of mean easier. Um, Were you looking for something to take away the pain? One of the more popular um, ways of sharing the gospel, of teaching people the, the, the words of Jesus, the basic truths of the Christian faith in the 1970s and 1980s, was to use these little tiny books. They were called tracts. And one of the more popular ones was written by a guy named Bill Bright. He started an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. And the name of his tract was The Four Spiritual Laws. And the first of the four spiritual laws in this little tract that he wrote is this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life which I wholeheartedly believe in. I think he's 100% correct. The challenge comes in our culture's association with the word wonderful, doesn't it? Right? The point I'm driving towards this morning is this. I think a lot of us were invited to follow Christ in ways that emphasized the benefits of following Christ and kind of understated the costs of following Christ. I believe the benefits of following Christ far outweigh the costs of following Christ. Paul writes this to the Christians in Rome. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. I agree with Paul, but the danger of failing um, to take the cost of Jesus, the cost of following Jesus seriously, is that then when we do experience suffering that is associated with our devotion to Jesus, often we don't know what to do with this. Often this knocks us back on our heels and we're going, Did I, am I doing something wrong? Is there something that's not happening as it should be? It can be confusing, it can feel defeating when we receive opposition or when we suffer in connection with our devotion to Jesus. When, when most of what you've heard about being a Christian has to do with joys and blessings and victories, but your devotion to Jesus is making your life more difficult, is, in, is causing you to need to sacrifice what you want to do something else, seems to be the purpose or the reason behind some of your grief you might think, why isn't this Christian thing working? What's going on here? So for several weeks this summer, we're reading through the record of the early Christian church. It's this little, it's not a little, it's a book in, in the Bible called Acts, which is short for the Acts of the Apostles. And for this reading of Acts, we're looking at uh, the writings of Luke here through two lenses, the lens of suffering and the lens of healing. Now, we planned this series last summer, which is, uh, continues to be a challenge for me. I just, I'm, I'm amazed at this. It's so encouraging to, to recognize that God led us to preach through these passages a year ago, and now we're preaching about suffering and healing in the midst of a time that is just multifaceted in the, in the difficulties that, that it's presenting. So here's why the themes of suffering and healing 
are worth considering as part of a worship gathering like this. As Christians or as those who are considering becoming a Christian, uh, we need to have a biblical understanding of suffering and of healing. A biblical understanding, a Christian understanding. There are several ways we could understand suffering. Several narratives we could write around suffering. There are several ways we could define healing. It's critical for us to understand that both understand suffering and healing from a perspective that is distinctly Christian. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 9 again this morning. This is the story of the conversion of one of the most famous persecutors of the Christian church who then becomes a follower of Christ. He's a Jewish man named Saul. He encounters the risen Jesus on the road to a city where he's going to do house arrests. He's going to go into synagogues and homes, take Christians out of them, bring them back to Jerusalem. He encounters Christ. He becomes one of the biggest promoters of Christianity ever. He changes his name from Saul to Paul. He starts Christian churches all over the known world. He writes letters to all these churches. They're so profound in their comprehension and understanding of the teachings and the life of Jesus that people hand his letters around to different churches and different places, and his letters become embraced by the church as divinely inspired scripture. They make up the Bible, a large part of the New Testament that we have uh, with us today. So we started Acts chapter 9 last week. This is kind of a part two of that. We're going to read some more of Saul's conversion. But what I really want to focus on this morning is one thing that Jesus says right in the middle of the story. This is what Jesus says. Acts chapter 9 verse 16. Jesus says this, and he's talking about Saul. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. (laughs) I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. All right, let's look at Acts 9. We'll put a lot of scripture on the screen this morning. I'm going to start with verse 3. As he, that is Saul, neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house on Straight Street, Judas's house, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to the people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings. Gentiles are non-Jews and to their kings, and to the people of Israel. And then he says this, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. (laughs) And then Ananias went to the house. He entered it, placed his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road when you were coming here, Same guy, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. All right, here's a question. When Jesus 
tells Ananias, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for my name, is Jesus talking about punishment. Is Jesus saying, oh, don't worry about it, Ananias. I got something special cooked up for this guy. I will make him pay for all the suffering he has caused. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because that's not a Christian understanding of suffering. That understanding of suffering sounds more like karma, kind of like what you do will come around and bite you later. Jesus isn't saying, Saul made some bad decisions, I'm going to make him pay for it. No, Saul doesn't pay for his sins. He doesn't pay for his own sins. Jesus pays for his sins, right? Jesus goes to the cross for Saul and, and suffers so that Saul may be saved. This is what Jesus does for you and for me, right? He, he pays for our sins. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name? I think Jesus means this, just as I have suffered, so he will suffer. As Christ suffers, so those who follow Christ will also suffer. As people like you and me follow Jesus, who is the wounded healer, friends, we will participate in the healing of the nations, and we will be wounded in the process. There will be suffering that comes along with it. Paul reflects often on his own conversion story. He writes this in the opening lines of his letter to the Galatians. He says, you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. A big part of Saul's story or Paul's story is, he follow, is that um, as he follows Jesus, he moves from persecutor of the church to joining the persecuted. And this persecution or this suffering is not a punishment for Saul's past sins. This is simply a consequence, friends, of authentically following Jesus, of walking in the way of Christ. As Paul proclaims with his mouth and he lives out with his life, the way of Jesus, suffering will come. Friends, it's just part of it. It's just part of it. The way of Christ is the way of redemptive suffering. That's just part of it. Jesus suffers to bring healing so all who follow Jesus, who heal as Jesus heals, they will also suffer as Jesus suffered. So what that means, friends, is this, that when you suffer for the name of Jesus, you are not being punished for doing something wrong. No, you're suffering because you're doing something right, but you're living in an unjust world. When you suffer because you're doing something good in the name of Jesus, you're suffering not because you're doing something bad. You're doing something good, but you're doing something good in a broken world, right? So you're going to encounter resistance from all places, including spiritual resistance. You're not doing something wrong. You're doing something right. But don't expect everyone to stand up and cheer for you. Here's how the suffering for Jesus' name looks for Saul in the first few weeks after he becomes a Christian, after he follows Christ. We'll continue in Acts chapter 9, verse 19. Saul spent several days with the, with the disciples in Damascus. That's the, that's the city he was going to, to arrest these people. And now he's going to go live in their homes. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. He was going to do the synagogue circuit and extract all the Christ followers. I was joking with somebody last week. It's like they did a, a concert tour t-shirt. But he got to continue to wear the t-shirt because he hit the same spots 
He just didn't pull the Christians from the synagogues. Instead, he flipped it on him, and he's preaching Jesus as the Messiah at those very synagogues. All who heard him were astonished, and they asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, so far, so good. So far, so good. We would say, wow, Paul's ministry is thriving. The people are amazed. He's the up-and-coming Christian leader. Look how blessed he is, right? This is phenomenal. Put him on the cover of a magazine. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, after many days, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night, and they lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. What is happening here? Saul is beginning to suffer for the name of Jesus. I wonder how I would have responded if within a few days or weeks of becoming a Christian, I would have started receiving death threats and had to be smuggled out of Newcastle by those closest to me so that I could survive. I mean, I wonder how different my life would have been. I wonder if I would have even been able to comprehend the, the magnitude of what was happening around me. I'm pretty sure I didn't expect that kind of resistance for coming, becoming a Christian. Nothing like this. Let's look at verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas, who was introduced as a man of generosity and faithfulness in chapter 5, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Those are the big 12. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and he debated with the Hellenistic Jews. Why is that significant? Because those were the ones who killed Stephen in chapter 7 when Saul was approving of their actions. He reconnects with those guys two chapters later and debates them, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him to Caesarea. They sent him off to Tarsus, which is where he grew up. Okay, So suffering for Paul. In just the first few weeks of being a Christian, death threats, escapes by night, viewed with suspicion and fear by those he hoped to join in community, more death threats, conspiracies, and just go home, Paul. Just go home. You're, you're just a liability, frankly. There's so much chaos around you. We, just go home. What's remarkable to me as a person who's been raised in and shaped by a culture that is so averse to suffering we are so averse to suffering, is that Paul and other early Christians, they don't see suffering for their faith as a sign that something is wrong. They see their suffering as just part of following Jesus. Yes, there are all kinds of practical ramifications and cautions and lowering him in a basket and let's just send him to another city for a while, 
but they see suffering as part of what it means to follow Jesus. And friends, even more than that, and this is so challenging according to our way of thinking, they sense that their suffering is a blessing, that it is a gift, that it is an affirmation of the authenticity of their relationship with Jesus. Here are a few examples of that. The first time the apostles are brought in before the Jewish leadership and they are flogged, that is severely beaten and told, don't ever preach in the name of Jesus again. Then they're sent out. They don't leave saying, what did we do wrong? No, Acts 5.21 says, they left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Jesus himself, Matthew 5 says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's Paul later in his ministry writing to the church in Rome. He says, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. One more example, Paul says this to the church in Philippi, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Do you know what that means? Granted? He's using gift language for suffering. Here's a gift. Here's a gift for you. It's a gift that you believe in Christ. Don't take credit for that. And it's a gift that you get to suffer for Christ. I mean, it's remarkable. It is a remarkable perspective on suffering. Okay, big idea this morning, friends, is this. Following Jesus involves suffering. That's what I'm talking about. Following Jesus, it just involves suffering. That might sound surprising to us, but it shouldn't. Because we're talking about following Jesus, who suffered, right? So if we're going to walk as Jesus walked, why are we surprised that walking and following Jesus would involve suffering? Now listen, there's all kinds of suffering connected with doing bad things. There's all kinds of destructive consequences to doing evil things. We are not talking about that. That's not what I'm talking about. What we're talking about is suffering for doing good, suffering for standing up for Jesus, for doing what Jesus said we should do, suffering in the name of Jesus. That's what we're talking about. When Jesus tells Ananias that Paul will suffer, why will Paul suffer? Because following Jesus involves suffering. That's why. That's why. And the more you follow Jesus and the more resistance you encounter, right, the deeper you go into enemy territory, it just stands to reason. There's going to be pushback. There will be suffering. And Paul experiences it profoundly. All right. Against that idea, or in light of that main idea, following Jesus involves suffering. Let me offer just three observations, three more small thoughts about this, all right? One thought's about risk, a thought about responsibility, and a thought about reward. What I want to do here, friends, is I personally, I want to move toward a more Christian view of suffering. I want to understand my suffering, the suffering, not the suffering for when I sin, the suffering for when I'm doing what God wants me to do and I suffer for that. I want to understand that in a very accurate way from a biblical perspective, right? So let's consider these three things. First, risk. 
We worked very hard in our culture to minimize risk, do we not? We work to remove risk whenever possible. We try to remove risk from every part of life. We are remarkably risk-averse people. We will go through all kinds of efforts to remove risk. Think about how often safety is elevated to the most important value in anything we do in our lives, right? We will do almost anything to make football safe, right? To make driving safe, to make the 4th of July safe, to, to make leaving our homes safe. We, we'll just, everything's fine as long as it will make us safe. It's almost like we then expect everything to be safe, to be free from risk. And like, if it's not safe, it's not worthwhile. And if, if any amount of risk is involved, the, t- the thinking is that it invalidates the pursuit. If there's too much risk, it invalidates the relationship. If there's too much risk, it invalidates the activity. If it's risky, we tend to think, hey, don't do it. Here's the thing. It is really difficult to follow somebody like Jesus while avoiding risk. Have you noticed? Christianity is costly. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you time. If you're going to do what Jesus said, it's going to cost you money. If you're going to follow Jesus, you will be misunderstood. You will be criticized by those you love. You will be in situations that are far from convenient. Relationships may become more difficult, not less difficult. Professional promotion will be negatively affected in many cases. You might not be part of the cool kids at school. By following Jesus, there is a good chance that you're going to suffer. We cannot guarantee your safety. The church should have a sign on the front of the door that says that. We cannot guarantee your safety because we're preaching about this man named Jesus. And following him while being risk-averse is very challenging. Some of us, we just need to decide. All of us, ultimately, we need to decide. And we may decide this over and over and over and over again. Is this a risk I'm willing to take? Right? Is this a risk I'm willing to take? It's difficult to read the Acts of the Apostles and come away with the conclusion that the early followers of Jesus were risk-averse. Really hard to come away with that, with that conclusion because nearly every story in Acts involves embracing significant risk in order to obey Jesus. It just seems to go with it. A thought about risk. Here's a thought about responsibility. I wonder if Christians need not just a willingness to risk, but I wonder if we actually have a responsibility to do so. In this sense, that we have a responsibility to care for the poor, and that's risky. We have a responsibility to welcome the foreigner, and that's risky. We have a responsibility to help the widow, to heal the sick, and to love one another. And that's risky. Jesus commands us to do all of these things. None of these things are easy for me. All of them are my responsibility as a follower of Christ. Later in Paul's ministry, in a letter to the Colossians, Paul writes this. This is power right here. This is what Paul says. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And... I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What what, what are you talking about? He says he fills up. 
He makes up for the lack. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? How in any way are Christ's afflictions not enough? How can anything be lacking in the suffering of Christ? And what in the world can Paul do to make up for what is lacking? A lot is written about this statement because it's complicated. But simply put, Paul is basically saying it is his responsibility to suffer in order to bring others to Jesus. There's nothing insufficient about Jesus' suffering. Jesus suffers completely and effectively for the whole world. But in order for the message of God's love to reach the whole world, it almost always takes somebody else to fill in the gap there. Right? You're not filling in the gap in such a way that you pay the price for the suffering uh, or for the sins of the person you're trying to reach. Jesus pays the price for their sins. But by making up for what is lacking, we might say, look, there's no way my friend so-and-so is going to encounter God unless I am the one who bridges that gap. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what Paul's saying. I am rejoicing in suffering for you because I see it as I am bridging the gap between Christ and you. I am, br- I am introducing you to Christ, essentially. And Paul says, this is something that's causing me suffering, but I rejoice in it. Each one of us has a responsibility to connect those in our lives with the love of God for them, and that responsibility will often require some kind of suffering. Here's a final thought uh, about reward. We've talked about risk and responsibility, and here's a thought about reward. Finally, as we reflect on a Christian understanding of suffering, here's a quick thought. Yes, Those who suffer for Christ are rewarded. And Jesus says that their reward in heaven is great. And there's so much we could say about this. This is a whole study. It would be amazing to do a whole study on the reward for following Christ. But let me just offer this one thought. Ultimately, the reward for suffering for Christ is not transactional. It is relational. You follow me? It's not transactional. It's relational. The reward is not about something you will get. The reward is about someone you will know and how deeply and intimately you will know them. Let me offer this short story. When I turned 40, I set a bunch of goals for when I turned 50. And one of those goals is I want to have an open and honest relationship with my three kids. That's what I pray about and I work towards that. And, I, and by, by God's grace, I, I have a good relationship with my kids. I have a special bond with Isaiah. Um, I don't love him more than the other kids. I just have a special bond with him. And that bond was forged in a season when he suffered. And I suffered with him. I joined him in his suffering. What was the payoff for joining with the one who was suffering? Relational bondedness, right? Relational connection. A close and intimate sense. I see you. I know you. The reward was a powerful relational connection. There are so many things we could label as benefits to suffering for the name of Jesus. But we could get off track if we think about these benefits in transactional terms. What am I going to get? What am I going to get paid? That's a transaction. The greatest reward related to suffering for Jesus 
is deep, intimate, relational connection with Jesus. The reward is union with Christ. That's the reward. There's nothing more powerful than that. There's nothing more important than that to me with my kids. Relational connectedness. Paul writes this to the Philippians. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings. Wow, that's incredible. Sometimes it's translated this. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Sometimes it's translated this. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and I want to share in his sufferings. Friends, in the middle of Paul's conversion experience, Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Does Paul willingly embrace the risk of following Jesus? Yes, he does. Does Paul take hold of the responsibility to suffer for Jesus, even to suffer so that others could come to Jesus? Yes, he does. He says, this is my responsibility. And what is Paul's reward? It's knowing Christ. That's his reward. Really knowing Christ. Sharing in his sufferings. And in the end, uh, sharing in his resurrection. Amen? Let's pray for a minute. Father, we ask in the face of a lot of noise and a lot of alternative narratives about suffering and how it's worth anything to avoid it, that we would not avoid suffering for you, that we would follow you in obedience even when it requires something of us that is hard. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here and at home today that as they continue to try to do the right thing, as they continue to follow you and and work to obey your teachings and then face adversity for doing so, that you would sustain them. And in the quiet of their heart, despite the financial challenges, the relational challenges and all the rest, that they would sense a closeness with you that would make them believe, man, this is worth it. This is worth it. I am joining Christ not only in the power of his life, but also in the power of his sufferings. God bless your church. May we faithfully follow you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.